All right. Let's begin with the word of prayer. Father, the, uh, the storms of life rage, and so teach us to rest in you, teach us to trust you. I'm thankful for this psalm that we're able to look at tonight that will help us in that way. We pray that you would help us to find our confidence in you and and not to fear when the difficulties around us are mounting up, but to have confidence in in your power, your goodness, your plan, and that through it all that, that you will bring about our holiness and your glorification. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, do you mind if I go play the piano for you? Actually, I'm not going to, but I can't play. But I do want to uh, use the piano as an illustration. Um, we know from Psalm 1 and countless, countless other passages in the Bible that those who trust in the Lord will prosper. Do you believe that? Those who trust in the Lord will prosper. Well, I believe that too. It's music to my ears. Um, that those who put their confidence in God will prosper. Find, the, find these notes here. That's the kind of music it sounds like when we trust in God and God brings about our prosperity. But what happens when the wicked around us, you know, we see them, um, we see them around us, and, you know, if they're suffering, it's no big deal for us. That's kind of normal. We expect that. The wicked should suffer. That's completely what they should do. That's what Psalm 1 talks about. But what happens when the wicked around us, instead of suffer, they prosper? Hear that dissonant chord? It's, it, it doesn't sound right. It's not correct. And you know, it makes us wonder if, if trusting in God is worth our efforts. I mean, how do we righteous people respond to the prosperity of the wicked? It just it doesn't seem right. And this is the question that David asks here in Psalm 37. So let me invite you to turn there if you haven't already. Psalm 37. How do we righteous people respond to the prosperity of the wicked? This, I think, is what David is trying to get at here in, in this, uh, in this uh, bit of a longer psalm. He wants to answer this question, I think, for himself, but also for his readers. And he does it by writing this, what I think we could categorize as a wisdom psalm. A wisdom psalm, which is a psalm that focuses on God's promises, God's Word, as a means to receive His blessing. Uh, similar to what you might find in, in uh, the Proverbs. You know, if you follow God, if you trust in God, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings and in all thy ways um, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. So there's a promise there. There's a, there's a command there for us to follow God's Word. And then there's a promise that if we do that he will make our paths straight. Well, that's what a wisdom psalm is very similar to. It's, it's simply causing us to focus on God and, and his word as a means to blessing. 
So let me read our text for us this evening. Psalm 37. This is the Word of God. Do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in their conduct. Their sword will enter their own heart, and their bows will be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they will have abundance. But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish, like the smoke they vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is gracious and gives, for those blessed by him will inherit the land, but those cursed by him will be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. Depart from evil and do good so you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked spies upon the righteous and he seeks to kill him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. I have seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man, and behold the upright, for the man of peace will have a posterity, but transgressors will be altogether destroyed. The posterity of the wicked will be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. 
So despite the prosperity of the wicked, it is good to trust in the Lord. You, you will see the wicked prosper around you. But, but what we need to be reminded of and to be encouraged about and to do is to, to remember that, that it is good to trust in the Lord. And if we're going to do that, if we're going to continue to trust in the Lord despite the prosperity of the wicked, then we're going to need to keep eight things in mind that, that David gives here for us in this psalm. We need to keep eight things in mind. First, to continue trusting in the Lord, you must not worry about the present pro- prosperity of the wicked. Don't worry about the present prosperity of the wicked. Notice... Um, in the, these first eight verses, we're just gonna. David just takes us rapid fire through all these commands. In fact, he gives 14 commands in the first eight verses. He gives six do not commands and eight do commands. And and notice the first one here. It is in verse one. Do not fret. Another word for fret is worry. That's why I put that up there. So we must not worry about the present prosperity of the wicked. He's going to say this again in verses seven and eight. And then he's going to say at the second part of verse 1, do not be envious, don't be angry, verse 8, don't pursue wrath, verse 8. Then all the do commands, trust the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, cultivate faithfulness, delight in the Lord, commit your ways to the Lord, trust in the Lord, rest in the Lord, wait patiently. All in the first eight verses. And so here David's just saying, it is good to trust in the Lord and here's how you do it. And so the first thing that we need to see here is, is that we must not worry about the present prosperity of the wicked. Now, why would the righteous need to be commanded not to worry? This is the very first command he starts with in a psalm. Do not fret about evildoers. Why would we we need to be reminded about that? Yeah, because we might envy them or we start to see their prosperity and think, wait a second, is God going to follow through on His promise? I mean, is God a good God that He's going to follow through on this promise that He's made to me that if I trust in Him, if I seek refuge in Him, then it'll be good for me? Because as I look around at these wicked people, it seems like my pursuit of holiness doesn't matter. And actually, it would be better for me if I were wicked than if I were righteous because they're prospering, I'm not. And so that's why we have to be commanded not to worry. Don't worry about them. Okay? They, they are prospering. It's real. Okay? There's, we don't have to pretend they're not prospering. They are prospering. Not all of them, but, but some of them are, right? But don't worry about it. Secondly, don't envy the wicked. At the end of verse 1, don't envy them. Not only might we worry about them because God's promises that He has made to us, and we might think they, fall, they, they will fall through, but, but also we must not envy them. We must not envy the evildoers. Now, why would we envy them? Well, because they have something that we don't have, right? We want prosperity without suffering, don't we? And we know wicked people who have that. That's why we envy. We desire something that we don't have that they have. They have prosperity without suffering. And so what, he, what, what David is telling us, what the Holy Spirit, I think, is teaching us, is that, that the, the converse of worrying, the converse, the opposite of worrying and envying the wicked in their prosperity is to trust in God. 
So, in fact, that's what he does here in verse 2. How, how is it, we could ask, how is it that we stop worrying and envying over the wicked? Verse 2 tells us the answer. Well, we need to be reminded of what's going to happen to them. Right? For they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. So, if you are struggling now with thinking about and dwelling on the prosperity of the wicked to your own detriment, that is, it's causing you to get your eyes fixed not on God where it belongs, but, but, but on, on the wicked and their prosperity, then, then the antidote is, at least one of them is, to remember their final state. Remember their destiny. What are they described as here in verse 2? What are the two descriptions that, that, they're, that, are, that David gives here? Like grass, like grass that withers away, so it's here today, gone tomorrow. What else? And like a green herb. Okay, these are not eternal things. These are temporal things. And so we need to, to first, we need to um, avoid worrying about the present prosperity of the wicked. Secondly, we need to remember that it's worthwhile to trust in the Lord, verses 3 through 6. We need to remember that it's worthwhile to trust in the Lord. So this really provides a second motivation for why we shouldn't worry. The first is, verse 2, the justice of the wicked. Right? That is the justice that will come, the judgment that will come on the wicked. That's the first motivation for why we shouldn't worry uh, over their current prosperity. But the second is that, that there will be a reward that comes to us. Notice the, the promises here in verses 4 through 6. At the end of verse 4, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The end of verse 5, and he will do it. Verse 6, he will bring forth your righteousness as a light. So there's three promises of God that are all tied to us recognizing the, the worthiness, the worthwhileness of trusting in God. So here's a motivation for why we shouldn't focus on the prosperity of the wicked. They're going to be judged, verse 2, and we're going to receive reward. So that means we ought to trust in the Lord. We ought to trust in the Lord. That's, that's the simple command. This is how we really could sum up the entire uh, psalm here. Trust in the Lord and do good. Because it is good to trust in the Lord, then, here's very, very simple, then trust in the Lord. It is good to do this. And what it means to trust in the Lord is simply to rely on God by faith. And, and the way that we do that, maybe that's a little bit ambiguous, what does it mean to rely on God by faith? Well, it means that we simply rely on Him through the means that He's given, which is He's given us clear commands to obey. So the, the commands that we know about, obey them, right? That's what it means to have faith. The very first command you, you obeyed was the command to repent and believe. The very first time you ever obeyed God. The very first time that I obeyed God was to repent and believe. So as you go through your Christian life, you continue to do that. You, you recognize commands that, that have come from God and you respond to them in obedience. And then it's also, relying on God also means not just obeying clear commands, but being confident in His promises. So not only has God told you to do something and you do it, but He's, he's also given you a promise of what will happen and you believe it. You believe it to be true. That's what it means to rely on God. It's not to say, well, God, I know you said this, but either in His commands to obey or in His promises. 
right? Either one of those. In, in a command, we could say, well, I know you told me to do this, but I'm not going to do it. Or in his promise, God, I know you promised that you would do this, but I don't believe that you will. See, that's not faith. Faith is the opposite of that. So since it's good to trust in God, trust in God. Next, in verse 4, trusting in God involves taking pleasure in what pleases God. So find your pleasure in God's pleasures. See that in verse 4? This is probably a familiar verse to you. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now this is not a blanket promise that God's going to be your genie in the bottle so that any desire that you ever want and ask of Him, He's going to give to you. That's not what this promise is about. God is not promising to supply all of our selfish requests. As if if one of those requests were sinful, that God would be happy to just give it to us. Right? That's not the idea. Instead, we need to recognize the condition of it. Right? Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. So here's the idea. That as long as we're delighting in what God delights in, He will give us what delights us. That's the idea. Okay? Because as we measure or as we um, submit our delights, our desires, our pleasures underneath what God desires and and pleases Him, then He's going to give us those things. So we just ask Him. He's happy to to respond to us. And and so I think this is a promise that David gives that, that transcends dispensations, that goes across the arrows and is for us as well. That God promises to provide for His people. I mean, Jesus used the example. Um, I was just reading this week in Matthew's Gospel, uh, where what what kind of father, if his son asked for a fish, would give them give the son a, a scorpion or a snake, right? Who would do that? No good father would do that. Why would your heavenly father? Of course, your father wants to give you uh, good gifts. And so, as we line up our desires under God's God, I think, happily responds to us. And so let me just encourage you, um, even this week, to, to preoccupi- preoccupy yourself with what God delights in, what God desires. In other words, dream about what God loves. Dream about the things that God loves, God desires, God wants to see happen in your life. And then line yourself up with those desires. So as we line our delights up with God's delights, these aren't just our imagine. This is what I imagine God wants. No, this is what God has revealed that He wants. Okay, so God's revealed delights, we could say. As we align ourselves under His revealed delights, then He gives us what delights us. And then verses 5-6, through six, trusting in God is worthwhile. So verse 3, because it's good to trust in God, then trust in God. And, and as we do that, it, it means that we take pleasure in what pleases God, and so, so do it. Recognize its worthwhileness. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. In other words, have confidence that all the inconsistencies that you now see in life because of the injustices that you're facing will be reversed at the judgment day. God's going to bring that to pass. So what that means is if, if that's going to be worth it at judgment day, 
If it's going to be worth it to go through what we have to go through in order to get to that day spotless, having been uh, preserved by Christ, then why not go through it? The point is we ought to go through it. It's worthwhile to trust in God. So first, we must not worry about the present state of the wicked. Second, we must remember the rewards that come from trusting in God. And then thirdly, we must be confident in God's plan. Verses 7 and 8. We must be confident in God's plan. One of the challenges of living in a dissonant world where we hear that dissonant chord and it just rubs against us, right? That the righteous are supposed to prosper, but the wicked are prospering. One of the challenges of living in that kind of dissonant world is that if we're not careful, we can become unhinged and think, you know, if justice is not going to come, if the people around me are going to continue to mistreat me, then I'm going to take the law spiritually into my own hands. I'm going to do God's job that He's not doing. So I see all the prosperity of the wicked. That's not fair. That's not right. That's inconsistent with how God designed the world. And so I'm going to take it upon myself. We might want to carry out vengeance on the wicked ourselves. And the Holy Spirit's reminding us tonight that notice what we should do here in verse 7. Rest. Just relax. They settle down. It's not up to you to, to bring judgment upon the wicked. And then the, the reason I say relax, notice the second phrase there in verse 7. Do not fret because of him. This is the second time we've seen it. And we're going to see it again at the end of verse 9. I'm sorry, end of verse 8. Do not fret. It only leads to evil doing. So, if God is sovereign, and He is, if God is in control over all of the wicked and allowing them to rise up, right? He says, I raised up Pharaoh for this very purpose, so that my power and my mercy could be seen through the deliverance of my people. If God knows that that's happening and He's allowing that to happen, then our job is not to tear everybody else down, make sure the wicked suffer, take out vengeance for ourselves. Instead, it's to relax and to rest in God. Trust that He's got it under control. Verse 8 tells us we need to control our temper. How, how timely is it for us to think about this during election season, right? If you've started to follow this, I know it's still early, but start to follow all the, the primaries, certainly your blood has been boiling. Okay, but, but here's what we need to do. We need to control our temper. Recognize, okay, God, God may be temporarily allowing the wicked to prosper and maybe the wicked actually get into the White House and they continue to prosper. But we don't have to fret. We don't have to worry. We need to relax and remember that, that our, our anger will only lead to, our worry will only lead to what? Verse 8. Do not fret. It only leads to what? Evil doing. So, so there's nothing wrong with anger, necessarily. Anger in itself is not evil. Um, God is, is angry. It's completely appropriate for God to be angry at sin. Jesus was angry. Uh, we can be righteously anger, angered at things, but 
But what we need to guard ourselves against is unrighteous anger. And that's what David's calling for. Listen, don't become anger to the point of unrighteousness that leads you to evil doing. Control yourself. Remember their end. Number four, we must patiently endure. If we're going to succeed as believers, we must consider the end of both the wicked and the righteous. And so that means that we're going to have to experience this dissonant chord throughout our lives as Christians. Don't think that that chord is going to resolve in this lifetime where it's just a smooth flowing and and peaceful sound to your ears for the remainder of your life. We need to patiently endure and recognize that that there will be wicked who prosper. Notice the contrast here in verses 9-11. through You have in verse 9, the evildoers will be what? They'll be cut off. Verse 10, yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more. They'll be destroyed. You're going to look around for them, but they're going to be gone. But notice the righteous at the end of verse 9. But those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Verse 11, but the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. So you're looking around, you're seeing the prosperity of the wicked, and what God is saying is stop looking at the temporal prosperity of the wicked. Because in the end, this is what you need to look at. Look at the end game. Endure patiently because the end game is this. The wicked will be cut off. The wicked will be destroyed. You're going to look around for them, they're going to be gone. But you know what you're going to be doing? You're going to be on the earth, inheriting the land. You'll still be living. I think that's talking about the millennial kingdom and the eternal state to follow. That while their experience the torment of eternal hell, you will be living in the presence of Jesus Christ on this earth and then eventually on the restored earth, the, the, um, the new heavens and, and the new earth. You see, the end of the story is that the righteous will own land, but the wicked will not. And what we need to be reminded of when the wicked are prospering is that God is the judge and He will judge everyone according to their deeds. And so if that's true, then we will win in the end. And so... um, So what should we do here? If that's true, what should we do? Notice verse 10. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. The idea here is we need to be patient. Okay? It's coming. God's judgment's coming. The time when God makes it clear who the righteous and who the unrighteous are, that time's coming. And so just be patient. Patiently endure the, the troubles that you face, the, the persecution that you endure, patiently endure. That's part of what it means to trust in God. Next, verses 12 through 20, number five, be confident in God's power over the wicked. Be confident in God's power over the wicked. We've kind of already touched on this a little bit, but but what we need to know is two important things. First, God knows the actions of the wicked in verses 12 through 14. God knows the actions of the wicked. Notice what they're doing in verse 12. They're plotting against the righteous. They're gnashing their teeth. I mean, the reality of the situation is that 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 the, some of the reason that the wicked prosper is because they prey on the righteous. That is, sometimes 
we are the victims of their plots, of their evil plots, that they actually prosper. They, they move up in society. They gain more money because of their wickedness. That's what's going on here. So that's a reality. But look what God is doing. Verse 13. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. The reality is that God knows exactly what's going on the wicked. Every time someone asks, acts unjustly to you, God knows about it. And they, the wicked, think that they're getting ahead and they're getting an advantage and they're improving their situation. You know what God's doing? It's like Psalm 2, right? He's up in heaven. The nation's raging against God and what's God doing? He's laughing at them. He scoffs at them. He says, I have set up my king. He will rule over you. And so we should not fret. We should not worry over this either. God is sovereignly in control. Verse 14, the wicked have drawn their sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy. So their their, um, prey is the righteous often, that they're coming after us, trying to tear us down. But we need to remember that God, verse 13, is laughing at them. So we need to know that God... We need to be confident that God knows the actions of the wicked, but He doesn't just know them. He also has power over them, doesn't He? And that He's going to judge them. He's going to bring them to judgment, verses 15 through 20. Verse 15, He's going to return their attacks back on them, right? They have the, wick, they have the bow drawn, but what's going to happen to their bow at the end of verse 15? It's going to be broken. They're ready to use their sword to slay, but instead their sword's going to pierce their own heart. It's like... In Proverbs and actually some other Psalms we've seen where the, the, the wicked kind of set up a boulder as a trap and it rolls back on them like a cartoon. Or they set a trap, a, a hole in the ground and put some leaves over and they end up falling in it. And God's saying, that's what's going to happen. See, in the big view, okay, step back from your current circumstances and recognize that yes, the wicked are prospering. They're setting up all their traps. They seem like they're advancing. They may be causing temporal pain for you, but, but ultimately what they're doing is they're bringing on eternal pain for themselves, aren't they? Because God is going to judge them. So we may be victims of the wicked, verse 16. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance. So let's pretend that, that we're both on the same plane as far as possessions. That we, the righteous, and they, the wicked, have the same But what God is saying is when they start taking from you and you have little and they have much, you're in a better position. Isn't that what the text says? Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance that the wicked has. And the reason it's better is because we can be confident in God that no matter how little we have or how much they have, that trusting in God is better than opposing God. See, we would have rather have little and, and almost no resources as long as we have God than to have much and not have God. That's what he's saying. And the reason why is because they're going to be judged. Notice verse 17. For the arms of the wicked will be broken. And then verse 19. Um... 
the end of the verse, in the days of famine, they will... Uh, well, that's actually talking about the righteous there in verse 19. Skip to verse 20. Sorry about that. But the wicked will perish, and the enemies of the Lord will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like the smoke. They vanish away. So the wicked can accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. They can build up their barns at our expense sometimes, right? It doesn't mean every time the wicked prospers, he's always doing it at the expense of the righteous. That's not what David's saying. Please don't, please don't think that, that you know, you're always, every time you have a loss, it's because of a wicked person. Sometimes it's just the nature of life. But, but often that can be the case. And no matter how much they build up, how much good does all that abundance do for them in the next life? But the end of the righteous is this. Look at the second part of verse 17. But the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless. And their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil. And in the days of famine, they will have abundance. So, here, here's the truth. The righteous will suffer. The, the, the righteous will have times of, of poverty, of difficulty, of having possessions taken away. Do you notice that the Bible doesn't promise a health and wealth gospel? But rather, what it does is it gives us hope in the midst of our healthlessness or wealthlessness. To coin a couple words, right? The Bible promises to give us hope in the midst of those circumstances. That even in those times when we have no help, even in those times when we have no no money, that it's better to be in that situation with God than to have all of our health and have all the pleasure of this world, right? What did Jesus say? What does a profit a man if he gains the whole world? Put that on his side of the scale, but he loses his own soul. He still he's got a lot in terms of what we see, but he's got nothing in terms of what we have. So patiently endure then be confident in God's power over the wicked. God knows what's going on and he promises to judge them. And then number six, we must not forget the ongoing provision from God. We must not forget God's ongoing provision for us. Verses 21 through 26. The point of these verses is that we must trust in God. And as we get our eyes fixed on our future reward, not the present evils around us, we start to see that, you know what? God's actually providing for me. Even in my, my times of little, when I don't have plenty, I see that God's still abundantly providing for me. And that means that when God provides for me, it's okay when things are taking away, taken away or when I give things away. It's okay. Do you know why? Because I know that God is watching over me. I know that God cares for me. And so we can joyfully give money to other people. We can give our possessions to other people. We can lend money to, to other people without thought of repayment. You see that in verse 21. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the, riches, the righteous is gracious and gives. So, so we work hard... To, to build up our resources so that we can give it away, so that we can help other people. You see, when we have a proper perspective in life, we can still manage when our resources are on the decline. We can still handle life, but the wicked can't. 
Because they're all about building up something. Building up these temporal resources. And so they can never have enough. But we, we, can, we can give those things up. Look at what kind of security the righteous person has in verse 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. This is the kind of security that God promises to us when we, when we trust in Him. And the fact is that, that through it all, whether in times of prosperity, materially speaking, or in times of, uh, of um, despair or when we're, we're losing things, truth is that God provides. Verse 25, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. Now, you might look around and say, wait a second, I know some believers that, that they were begging for bread. And that's not what, what the text means here. It's, the point is, is that it's not that there's no temporary setbacks for the righteous, right? Read the story of Job and you're going to see that. But rather that the ultimate outcome will not be God's abandonment. So again, this is big picture thinking. In terms of the big picture, the righteous don't come to a place where they're abandoned by God. It never happens. So that should give us great hope. must not forget the ongoing provision of God. Two more. Number seven. If we're going to trust in God, if we're going to maintain or continue to trust in God, we must avoid evil. Verses 27 through 36. How is it that we're going to be delivered? Well, the answer is that, that we're going to be delivered through the judgment of the wicked. How can we be sure that we're not going to be lumped into the judgment of the wicked? How are we going to be sure that we're going to be able to stand on the day of judgment? And the answer is, well, our lives should bear fruit, shouldn't they? Verse 27, depart from evil and do good. Remember that God is the judge. He's going to judge us for, for how we responded to, to His commands. So it's good to trust the Lord because God judges the wicked. He rewards the righteous, and so we should. Here's a, here's a motivation behind that trusting. Verse 28, For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake His godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. So, we can be confident that it's good to pursue holiness, to avoid evil and do good because we know that God is good. He's just. He's not going to turn a blind eye to our goodness, to our pursuit of holiness. God's going to see that and respond. Obviously, what I'm talking about is not a means of salvation that is a way for us, for God to show favor to us. Um, in a justifying way, but rather the response of what happens when we are justified. That God's going to look at our good works. In fact, that's what He made us for, isn't it? That He created us in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.10, for good works. So what should we do? Well, we should pursue good works. And when we do that, it helps us to have assurance that we are in Christ, that we are in God's blessing, that we're going to receive His blessing. Verses 30 and 31, the expression of a person who trusts in God. He, he lives according to God's values, verse 30, and he lives according to God's word. So, according to God's value, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. Well, God is wise, and his tongue speaks justice. God is just, so we're going to 
speak out of what fills our hearts, and our hearts are going to be knit with God's. So we're going to, to be wise kind of people. That is, that we follow after God's values. And then we're living according to God's Word. Verse 31, the law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. In verses 32 and 33, we see the promise. The promise of God to protect the righteous. The problem with the wicked is that they don't just want to, to uh, cause damage, but they, have, they ultimately want to destroy us, seeks to kill him. But notice what God will do in verse 33. The Lord will not leave him, the righteous, in his, the wicked's hand or let him be condemned when he is judged. God's not going to let you be condemned on judgment day. That's, the God, that's God's promise for those who trust in him. And therefore, verses 34 through 36, we should trust him. Wait for the Lord, verse 34. Right? Wait on the Lord. We may experience injustice now, but God's going to make it right on the final day. We need to be confident in that, don't we? And the opposite is true for the wicked. Right? They may flourish now, but God's going to make all things right on the final day, and they will be judged in verses 35 and 36. I've seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree. So he looks like that tree planted by the river of the water, doesn't he? That's what the wicked looks like now. But what happens to him? Verse 36, And then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. I sought for him, but he could not be found. Yes, the wicked may flourish for a time, but they're going to fade away. Notice all the promises that are given to the wicked. Verse 2, they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. Verse 9, for evildoers will be cut off. Verse 10, a little while and the wicked man will be no more. Verse 13, the Lord laughs at him and he sees that the wicked's day is coming. Verse 15, their sword will enter their own heart. Verse 17, the arms of the wicked will be broken, verse 20, but the wicked will perish. Verse 22, the end of the verse, but those cursed by him will be cut off. Second part of verse 28, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. Second part of verse 34, when the wicked are cut off, you will see it. Verse 36, he passed away and lo, he was no more. And then verse 38, we haven't gotten there, but... Verse 38, but transgressors will be altogether destroyed. Their posterity will be cut off. This should serve as hope for us, but also as a warning for us, right? That we don't want to end up like God is promising to the wicked. They're going to be cut off, not going to inherit the land. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be judged. It should serve as a warning to us that we must avoid evil because those who do evil will be judged in that way. Finally, we must fix our eyes on the future reward. Verses 37 through 40. So are, are you fretting, fretting right now? Are you worrying about the prosperity of the wicked? One of the helpful things that you can do is look around at other people who are trusting in God. See that? Mark the blameless man, verse 37. So get, put your eye on him. Watch that blameless man, that, that righteous person. Watch him. And behold the upright. Because do you know what's going to happen to them? Look at the end of the verse. For the man of peace will have a posterity. Consider their end. God will 
reward them. But notice the, the contrast. Look at the wicked that are around you. Yes, it looks like they're flourishing. But, cons- but, but consider them and consider their end. Verse 38. But the transgressors will altogether be destroyed. So here's the message for us. We need to fix our eyes on the future reward because God is faithful. Look at verse 40. The Lord helps them and delivers them. That is those who do what? Look at the end of the verse. Those who take refuge in God. God is faithful and good if we take refuge in Him. And so we must. It is good to trust in the Lord. Let me finish at the piano here. Play another piece. righteous have this promise of prosperity that if we trust in the Lord that we will prosper like the tree that's planted by the river of water. But the truth is that in life we have wicked people around us who are also prospering. And sometimes it's even at our own expense. And so this sound, this dissonant sound that we hear is real. I should have... Not up there. Paul, can you advance that for me? Go ahead ahead and keep going. Right there. So the prosperity of the wicked is real. But here's the good news. The prosperity of the wicked is temporary, isn't it? Do you notice some of the words that were used to describe the wicked? They will vanish. They will be cut off. So they're going to be rising up for a time, but they'll be cut off. They're like the grass. They're like smoke. They may prosper now, which doesn't sound good to our ears, but they'll not prosper in the end. And so that means that, yes, it's not right for the wicked to prosper. It should not be that way. We have this promise of prosperity, and yet they're the ones that are prospering. But the truth of this psalm is that that this dissonant chord of our present experience will be resolved. That is, that it's going to resolve into something that sounds sweet. Because there will come a day when we stand in judgment before God, and it will be clear who is on the Lord's side. The wheat will be separated from the tares, right? And it will be clear who trusted in the Lord. And the sound of that resolve will be music to our ears. That's not right. Oh, no. I messed up the whole thing. Sorry. Let me try this again. That was supposed to be your distant chord, and then here's your resolve. No. All right. Well, I... Call me Maestro. All right? That's my new name. Just imagine that there's a distant chord that resolves. And, um, all right, next time, Jonathan, I'm going to have to ask your help on that one. So it'll be clear who's on the Lord's side, and the, and the sound of that resolve, unlike what you just heard, will be music to your ears. It, it, will, be, it will make sense. And, and you know, if you, if you listen to musical numbers, some of the best ones actually do have distant chords in them but then they resolve. And that's what we're expecting. It doesn't sound right. We don't like it. 
But then when it resolves, it's just like this huge relief. Like, yes, that's exactly what it's supposed to do. And friends, the fact is that Psalm 1 is true. That those in the, who trust in the Lord will prosper. And so, believer, let me remind you that it is good to trust in the Lord. And so continue to do it.